This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alright guys, welcome to the two-year anniversary of the Cabal cast. Before we get started and get the topic, we both want to take the time to thank everyone that's been along for the ride. Mm-hmm. We couldn't have done it without you guys and we are continuing to make content just for you yes uh screaming into the aether because wizards is never going to listen but just trying to help you guys in the community so please again we don't need a like we don't need to subscribe just comments feedback that's what we care about so absolutely before we carry on our topic for the day it's pretty similar to what we did for our year one wrap up mm-hmm. we are going to recap some of our picks from the last year or two and then we're going to get into how some strategies have changed and stuff like that as the last year which has been a very unique time yes uh yeah. is shaping our strategy on finance and what we're doing since that's why we started this Absolutely. so, so uh, picks yeah i'll take i'll take it away for this one um so I went back and I looked at our picks for year one, and I, I, there was a lot of tournament play-based picks uh, that I had made because that's where I had seen success trying to be ahead of the curve. Uh, and I found myself to be a little cute with my picks, uh, branching out instead of just going with things that I knew were going to work, like the Team or Rec stuff that I'd suggested all throughout year one. That was really good for a quick turnaround, but none of it actually really lasted except for Team or Reclamation. And that's kind of fine because the timelines for those were meant to be short. One of the cards I did pick, though, that was supposed to hold long-term because it was part of a standard combo but didn't uh, is Narumeha. So Narumeha is a mythic wizard from Dominaria. Uh, It's a a 3-3 for 4 that has flash. And when Narumeha enters the battlefield, copy target instant or sorcery spell you control. You may choose new targets for the copy. Other wizards you can control get plus 1, plus 1. So I picked this for a couple of reasons. So when I picked it, it was $0.83, cents because it, and it was the uh, the combo engine for this deck in Standard. And I figured, much like Jace Cunning Castaway, that this is a card that would go up over time as people would kind of move in. We were heading towards the end of a season, and that's generally when people kind of branch out and do dumb things because everything's over. Yep. Po- you know, uh, what is the, the line from Whose Line Is It Anyway? The point... Everything's made up and the points don't matter. Exactly. That, that's where we where we are at that time of year when you look at worlds. Everything's locked in. But the reason I picked this is because it actually reacted the way I expected it to, only because Watsy did me a favor. <laughs> so right now it's got a two dollar and fourteen cent market price compared to the eighty three cents and tanking that it did, and this should have been an absolute loss until we got wizards. Uh, support for wizards the the dnd set that's upcoming uh, what we're getting for party this is all kind of helping to bolster bolster narameha and you can actually see that in the stocks graph when i zoom in when i zoom out it's a very flat graph but when you zoom in you see this very hard turn at the beginning of october kind of coming out of uh, m21 where we find out a little bit more about what's going to go on in the next year so the reason i picked this was because this was doomed to fail from the beginning it was too cute it was yeah. uh, non-functional, and this is kind of the exception that proves the rule in that there are no bad specs. It's just a longer timeline. I don't. I have not checked the buy list price on this thing. I've got a bunch of them, and I expect to sell at a loss. 
no matter yeah. when I get out. This card could be $4 on TCG Player Market, and I'll probably still sell at a loss, buying in uh, under a dollar. Just based on how things are going and what we're probably going to get in this dedicated wizard set coming up with uh, Strixheim, and then the D&D set. I expect this card to get completely outclassed. If, buy, if you bought in and you weren't able to get out uh, in the time frame where you could make a profit, I would start looking to out this now before we just kind of lose the window. So that's my 2019 pick, one of my uh, three failures today. That's... Uh... I similarly Sarkin's unsealing. It's not a bad spec. It's just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. I saw that on the list. Yeah. So my uh, first one, I'm going to go for an older pick as well to start off with, is a 2019 pick. Mm -hmm. And at the time I picked it, uh, this was in October of 2019, so almost a year ago. So okay, it was yeah. right around Eternal Weekend time. Uh, we'd seen a little bit of an uptick in this card, and that was Mox Diamond. So, of course, we've just gotten done with Reserveless Fall, like mm -hmm. always, and we've seen a 62% increase in the price when I picked it, which is 156 bucks. So this is kind of hearkening back to the running theme that we've held throughout the last two years of if you want to invest in something, the reserve list is the only thing to invest in. Otherwise, you're just flipping as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. It's the only way you're going to be able to sit and make money because this is something that even in the short term, right after that pick, within a few months, like spring of this year, hit around 300 bucks, yep. And then it kept going up. And it just harkens back to, you know what? If you want a sure thing, reserve list. Duels, yep. power, if you can get there. Even some lower end stuff which i'll get on in a future pick uh the reserve list is the closest thing to a safe bet in all of magic mm -hmm. and in magic finance and yeah. that's going to be a running theme for as long as the game exists absolutely yep uh, moving into uh this year and uh this is where i kind of start to pivot strategy i took a card that was part again part of a goofy standard combo but also had huge EDH potential. Thousand Year Storm. So my expectation was that EDH would carry this card, and it did. EDH is currently shouldering Thousand Year Storm. It doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, we can see it was kind of flat. It was hovering around five, and now it's up towards eight. Uh, there is currently a fairly large dip in market, but that should reverse course now that we're in Commander Legends spoilers, and we just got a, uh, a flip coin copy commander in Crark the Thumbless. So on his cannon, he has no thumbs. So Crark's thumb and Crark's other thumb are gone. gone. Sorry, that's an aside. So uh, the the dip in market that we're seeing right now should course correct. And this card is just going to, to keep going up. So I, I picked it at uh, $4.22. It's now got a, a market of about $5.57. You know, hootie who, uh, a whole dollar in uh, the last year down from about eight to where, like I said, where we are now. But this is the kind of card that's just going to carry into forever and just be outstanding because it is part of every Is It combo storm deck that exists in regular EDH. If you want to get more aggressive, you can pull this card out. You don't have to play this or Sphinx's Bone One. You can play something a little more uh, concise, uh, like Aethersphere Reservoir. But these two cards play extremely well in concert. 
compared to Sphinx's Bone Wand or Sentinel's Tower from Battle Bond, which is another um, Sphinx's Bone Wand. Thousand Year Storm just something just does so much more than any of those cards in letting you copy your spells again. So you can go off so much faster with a turnabout style combo where you just keep on tapping and tapping your lands. You don't actually need high tide to go off with thousand year storm under turnabout or similar effects but it makes it that much easier to do so and i don't really see this coming back we keep getting decent commanders or decent decks built for this theme and i think this is going to carry similar to the way paradox engine did and it's just never ever going to come back until we get a reprint at some point because it is not plain specific uh it's yeah. just is kind of a burdensome card to put in standard. It did require like four more sets afterwards and this gigantic standard field to create a combo atmosphere for this card. So in that regard, Wasi did kind of create their own problem, but they also dodged a bullet because I think green black at the time was just overwhelmingly good. So I also think it's one of those things that if it is going to be reprinted, it's, more likely that you'll see it in a supplemental product mm -hmm. like commander for example yep. would be a prime place because it's booing the price you don't necessarily want it to take up a slot for draft yeah it's good why to not put in, in a set yeah and so this represents that a transition in my strategy from 2019 to 2020 uh my next pick is yet again another example of the reserve list and I should note that these two picks are not the way my model has been going. I have decided to start slumlording and getting in on cards like Grim Feast and selling them into the inevitable spike. But here are some examples of a floor being raised. Obviously, Mox Diamond, and for this one, Peacekeeper, which actually wasn't picked that long ago. No. Uh, in fact, it looks like it was, well, I guess it was five months ago, so it was a little bit. But at the time I picked it, you were looking at a price of about five bucks. Now you're looking at around $20. So why did this happen? Well, for one, it's reserve list. And for two, it has a home in Legacy now. Uh, it's seeing play in EDH. Its use in EDH rec has gone up in registered deck lists. So while paper Legacy isn't necessarily happening, paper EDH is. And where paper Legacy is happening, people are actually having time to experiment now. So you've seen a playability factor that comes into this, and that's kind of one of the factors that I think drives reserve list cards more. Yeah. Now, this is an example of good reserve list cards to get into that have real price corrections, mm -hmm. whereas Grim Feast is a fake reserve list card that has a price spike. It's not a $10 card. It never should be, especially if Peacekeeper's 20 Come on, Correct. guys. Peacekeeper had been an eternal sideboard card up until the point where we picked it, and then things kind of swapped in Legacy because the format changed with Oko and Uro, and now people are playing similar but different builds for things like um, Abzan or Dark Maverick. Um, we've, we talked about the infinite versions and ways you can build Nickfit. 70, yeah. 71 cards and four veteran explorers is your Nick Fit pile now. And this is a card that has even been in things like Merfolk out of the sideboard. Because yep. you can, if you're not playing the Tundras for swords, then you can just slide it through your vials and it presents itself as a very real threat against other creature heavy decks. Yep. Decks that rely on combat to win. 
So the fact that this had been $5 for so long really begs the question of, one, why when it was playable, and two, is now less question and more statement of, this is a price correction, like you said, for playability reasons. And, I, and this is also an example of do as I say, not as I do, because I'm saying that the safe investment is always reserveless cards with playability. Don't slumlord it on sub $1 reserveless cards and hope they spike one day. No sane person should ever do that. No, no one wants That's to sell on I'm infinite saying. reserveless cards. Now, who would do such a thing? Who knows? Who would sit on 40 copies of Soul Exchange? I don't know a guy like that. Not at all. 120 time wipes, not reserveless, but who would do that? No. Who eats I'm 40 like, bag of lunches? <laughs> or 400 damping fields. What, what does that card do? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. All right. So, uh, moving on to my, my next pick for 2020. Uh, I, this is where I basically moved all in on EDH, but I waited for the price to drop on this. I thought it would be a combo card. It can be. We have yet to really see people experiment with it because the newest general for this is brand new as of one set ago. And I went with the extended art based on what we had, what we had seen coming out of uh, Theros prior. And this card is Song of Creation. Uh, for four mana, to me, it does way too much. And we just got uh, four-color Omnath, which is basically looking to do this. You want to play extra yeah. lands. You want to play a handful of spells. You really just want to kind of flip, uh, lean into Felidar Retreat and Valakut Exploration. It doesn't matter if you discard your hand. You have so many ways to play lands out of your graveyard. And with uh, is it Retreat to Balaged, the land that is Regrowth. Yeah, um, I think I, so. I can't remember the name of it. You can basically just uh, Life from the Loam back Balaged and return all the spells you need. Song of Creation was a card I expected to do very well in EDH a lot earlier. I picked it the extended art version at $280. It's now $1.90, $2. And playability never materialized. For me, it was just kind of a hunch. I looked at this card. I said it did way too much. And I'm kind of eating crow on this one, though the market price is coming back up. So this is me moving fully into EDH, but I had not fully explored the process that I've really uh, been put into place over the last two months. So, you know, this is this is how I transitioned in the last year. You know, these these three picks represent that. And now we're solidly in the EDH camp, unless something ridiculous pops up like Niv Mizzet and Pioneer. Yeah, for sure. I uh, my my third pick is one that I thought of all of the picks I have made that are not reserved list was the most sure thing you could possibly find in the entire world. There is no thing as sure as I think the sixth best blue creature ever printed. That's true. It only costs one in a green. Yeah, and that's Tarmogoyf. I thought for sure it would be perfect at 39.76 when I picked it. I said Modern's going to come back, Legacy's going to oh. come back, this card's going to be great. Which Goyce did you pick? Which one? Uma? Ultimate Masters. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out Modern only got worse because, yet again, Watsi doesn't allow us to have nice things. And I am kind of cheating here because this one was at, like, the very... towards the tail end of 2019. So I'm still tech counting it as a 2020 pick. But we had expected to play Modern and Legacy in the year of our Lord 2020, and here we are, so I'll give you it. Yeah. 
So this is one of those things that is also kind of a lesson in that playability is good. Understanding a metagame is good. Yep. But sometimes, no matter what you do, it's still going to be bad, and you need to avoid the sunk cost fallacy. Mm-hmm. If, if it's or learn when to avoid and when to just turn it into a longer term spec and goy for me was something that i'm sitting on i'm not going to get rid of them it's just no longer a three to five month turnaround it's now uh maybe paper magic happens again one day turn around yeah <laughs> and uh, if it does we'll see i like that you picked this because i was talking to somebody about this last week i said we get one more master's printing of this card and it's ten dollars forever it will never not be another ten to twenty dollar card max but what could save you is the fact that when it gets that cheap it might start seeing edh play yeah, that is there, very true. There, the For two, you get a lot of power. You get a lot of power on this creature for two, and when it drops that low, EDH might float your goat here. So yeah. you, you could get a little bit of a bump there. But this is definitely a card that got hoisted by uh, a, a cancellation of paper play, a change in the format overall for Legacy, um, but there always exists the, and the, there exists the opportunity it comes back however it's got to beat out uh, Tarmo Hawk yeah the uh, the black Tarmo Goyf that they printed in um, Zendikar what's the name of the thing thing is insane yeah I don't know like the fifth best blue creature ever printed yeah I mean. it's, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm blanking on it right now let me see if I can find it because it's going to bother me yeah it's going to bug me too but it's uh, so Skur Nope, that's Scourge and Skyclave. No. X plus one, where are you, little buddy? Nighthawk uh, Scavenger. Yeah, that one. Nighthawk Scavenger, yeah. It's a one three for three that just is better than Tarmogoyf, yeah. Yep. Hooray. So Um But yeah, I, I think this is an example of, you know, sometimes you may have a loss in two. I like you said, Tarmogoyf is one reprint away from being a $10 card forever. Mm-hmm. It got worse in Modern because the Modern metagame just got too fast for it. It got worse in Legacy because decks just started doing utility creature things over anything else. Yeah. I mean, Oko also doesn't help things. Uh, Omnath and Uro existing also doesn't help things because those cards are way, so good. Yep, way, way, way better. Yeah, um, and it, I haven't checked to see exactly what team or Delver is currently playing in Legacy, but I know that right now there's two schools. You're either playing Uro and a little slower, or you're playing Hooting Mandrels and being a little more aggressive. And my guess is that with those two, those two creatures are taking over the Tarmogoyf slot in that deck, especially because it's playing Chain Lightning now, which it was never yeah. before. So yeah, it's Arcanist, Delver, and then Mandrills usually. Yeah. Is so, what you're looking at. Sometimes people run Goyf. Yeah, so you're basically just looking at a card that hopes Jund or Abzan can make a, a comeback or maybe some kind of green-white aggressive deck in Modern for the time being. Or or maybe they just print it into uh, a Pioneer Masters or a standard set with two CMC removal because it is not a threatening creature in standard. Timer Goyf was no. just efficient in Time Spiral. It was not overpowering. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think it's a solid yeah. lesson, if mm-hmm. nothing else. No, absolutely. Um, all right. So coming out of uh, you know pick review and us being sad sacks for losses. Uh, Oops. Yeah. 
so we, we touched on it a little bit. Uh, we both kind of changed the way we're making our picks or our finance strategy uh, overall. And so this year I decided to move into EDH because it was easier to trend track, easier to see what's moving because the format just doesn't pop as quickly as constructed formats do. You don't have to pay attention to spoilers as much if you want to try and get ahead, and you're not reliant on what people are doing in the lead-up to a set release and, the, and a couple of weeks after. The majority, the overwhelming majority of my losses in 2020 were to cards that did not have EDH playability immediately. They were actually cards for Pioneer. And we were looking ahead, and we did win a little bit, but because Pioneer fell off, so did all of those picks. So instead of going yep. for quick turnarounds, I wanted to start moving into kind of uh, longer-haul uh, picks and looking for finance opportunities that could be six months out, but just require a little bit of capital and to kind of sit on. I don't mind taking a loss initially, like the Crypt Gas pick I made a couple of weeks ago. Sure. I would rather sit, I would rather make the pick, lose, you know, 20 cents in the next couple of weeks, and then make that money on the back end in six to 12 months when we don't get it in Commander Legends. That kind of stuff. So I've tailored what I do overall. Uh, if you're a member of our Discord already, you've seen over the last couple of weeks, I've tossed up uh, a bunch of scripts and applications that I've built myself that I use that uh, do some direct bias pulling that enhance the Card Kingdom site to make it a lot easier to see what's on their hot list, what's on their bias, and effectively begin your own trend tracking. And that's really what's been kind of my key to the last couple of months of picks i've got a backlog of like 20 to 30 cards that i'm watching i have a handful of stats that are kind of proprietary to what i care about and i'm just tracking those straight through and whenever they see what i think is determined a st statistically significant movement that's when they become a pick sometimes i gotta wait a little longer um in the case for the, the pick this week i've seen a little bit of movement but it took a while for me to really want to they move in and, and bring it up as a pick to ensure that the movement was real and it wasn't just, you know, listings coming down up TCG player for one reason or another and uh, shelving things around. And I've also become a little more reliant on bias numbers because they've been more true over the, the past couple of months than anything else. If you look back at Skirk Prospector, which I picked a number of months ago for EDH reasons, and you look at all the versions that are on stocks, all the averages sorry, all the market values are about the same. They've all gone up. What's been happening though is there's been market manipulation on the dual deck version of that and the average price is eight times the market price. The same thing happens with Terrain Generator from dual deck, uh, I think it's at the anthology dual deck it was in. All the cop, all the uh, market price are, prices are the same, but the dual deck uh, average is about 8x. So somebody is just relisting these at such an incredible price to, if to us, what I assume is just fool people that follow the stocks page yeah, and make buying decisions off of that. So instead of relying on the stocks page, relying on TCG player prices, yep, I've been going more to buy list numbers and trend tracking uh, that way. So, I, and I think that's, with things the way they are, probably one of the smartest ways for people to do it is bias trend tracking. Um, my business model has changed drastically without shows since a large portion of my business had to do with me working booths, everything else. Uh, what I've got now is basically I 
still occasionally hook locals up with deals, obviously. That's never going to change. But more importantly, I think, uh, slumlording it as much as I possibly can with penny specs. <laughs> Again, I don't necessarily think it's wise. I don't necessarily think you should do it. But I'm running the experiment for you. So I get to be subject zero for if this works yep. or not. Uh, space is at a premium. That's really all there is to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that's fine because it is a way that people kind of look at finance or magic in general because that is a way you can play the stock market. So there's got to be some kind of parallel there, right? Well, there might be, there might not yep. be. Uh, it all depends on what you're looking at for your penny specs. We talked about <clears throat> the low hanging fruit on the reserve list a while ago. I think it was a topic that we covered and the cards that were $10 or under or $5 or under as being possible targets you know, for, for this kind of thing, because everything's going up. Every, everything is floating up. Yeah. So it becomes a, a worthwhile strategy. And at the end of the day, it really, like whatever you find out, I'm hoping you're willing to share in regards to strategy space required, how long it, it took for a lot of this stuff. And yeah, that's uh that's the plan. I, I have a little bit of data that I want to keep until I see what happens after reserve lists fall. Yep. When we hit like post tax time, mm -hmm. because something that's I've noticed happened this year especially is the reserve list uh, fall correction, whatever you want to call it, has continued on pretty steadily mm -hmm. and probably will through taxes. And that's, you know, typically you'll see a little bit of a dip, and we're just not seeing that at all this year. So I'm curious how long term that plays out. But. Yep. We'll yeah. see. And it, it makes sense. Definitely. Uh, you know, you've got to figure out where the beginning and end of your uh, tracking period is going to be. And if there is no end in sight because it just keeps moving the same, then that's your data point, you know. And, and you can't call off the experiment early. Yeah, just because exactly. Things look a certain way. Um, one of the other things that I've tried to do this year is just consume not more varied content, but more content from uh, varied creators. So I've talked about uh, EDH Recast on the on our pod before, and I find myself listening to their episodes more intently than than almost anything else I listen to because they work on their own stats, and one of the sections that they spend the most time on in every episode is a challenge the stats section because it's user submitted data and people might oversubmit a card that doesn't work with a theme, which definitely does happen. They've called that out in the in this section before, and they've also called out cards that work for a theme that are just seeing too little play. So a good example of that is we talked about Elvish Piper as being a card that was underplayed a couple of weeks ago, and to me that just seems to be because it's a one one for four that requires you to untap with it or have a way to give it haste. So I just see that as kind of a non-starter for a creature in EDH. But for them, it's a worthwhile point to make because it fit the theme of the deck so well or the decks that they were looking at so well that it is a data point for them. And it kind of changes the way... Reminds me I need to change the way I think about uh, EDH as a whole. So aside from that, I know a lot of people listen to Bash Bros. That's Brad Nelson, Brian Brondoon, Corey Baumeister. And they're actually really into the MPL structure and yep. uh, tournament results. So it's it's a good review uh, early in the week after an event weekend or when there's an MPL announcement and I want to actually hear somebody who deals with the MPL for a living dissect it. Uh, 
that's awesome. Allied Strategies and MTG Grindcast, I kind of put in the same boat. They're, um, they're it's not semi pros. They get, you know, these people make money yeah. by doing magic, playing, writing, etc. Um, but they're both uh, similarly tournament results and format reviews, and they do uh, a ton of analysis each. So they're really good for standard and pioneer modern, whatever's coming up or whatever just happened. They'll generally go through and they have their own unique viewpoints because they're different sets of players. So it's great to keep an eye out for and an ear open for. And then the last one is LSV's second podcast, Constructed Resources, uh, yeah. with BK. And yep. they're, Good old BK. Yeah, they're very like, it's not listicle driven, but they are very much, here are our bullet points we're going to, to go down this list. It's not the standard amount of LSV fluff that you expect from a venture like this. And so it creates a much more interesting and educational podcast if you're looking for like root format information or the effects of changes within a format. It's they're really good at breaking that down. And so basically what, what this has done is given me a gamut of some of like the best profiles and people from constructed through to casual formats and also some white noise to work with. Yeah. So I've got that, and then I basically just pared my streams down to Todd Anderson, who I maintain is the GOAT. You know, he's the hero we deserve. And yeah. uh, a player I found this past weekend during uh, Eternal Weekend, Marco Male, uh, Italian Marco's streamer. Great. Um, though they do talk a little bit in English, so if you're just cool watching somebody stream Vintage and Legacy and not understanding the language or you don't want to run stuff through Google Translate, I, I would recommend uh, Marco what I found that I like, and I didn't realize at first when I started watching, was that when he's not in a tournament, he's always testing something, and he's in Discord with several other players at the same time. So if you understand a little bit of Italian or you want to translate some stuff, you can actually listen to them talk about strategy for Legacy, and you can watch them build what they're going to play next and talk about formats. And basically it gives you a really deep and rich understanding of both of those formats without really having to have to play them yourself and pay attention to them as much as possible. And this is something that was uh, tantamount for me while we were able to do shows and go out yeah. to events. When I knew I was heading to a legacy event and the team I was working with would hit me and say, what's legacy right now? You know, stuff like Marco would allow me to just vomit back, you know, on point. All right, this is what we need. This is why. And this is the quantity. Yep. Like, that was super useful for me for shows and these are formats I love so it just works out well you know I Marco is one of my favorite streamers um, as far as content that I've adapted over the last year I've branched out a lot more into other MTG finance podcasts uh, Bash Bros is continually one of the highest quality pieces of content out there uh, I've also been really impressed with Ristic Studies um, not finance really, but more of magic, how it relates to pop culture oh. with academic like art criticism and stuff like that, which is really good. Uh, they just did an episode not too long ago, I believe, on the fallout of the satanic panic and how it impacted magic, oh, which cool. I thought was yeah. incredible. Um, especially, you know, as an old man that was playing magic at the time, I remember it. Uh, one of my other favorites, and I will always give these guys a shout out, is Eternal Dirtles. Oh my uh, buddy of mine, Zach Clark, is great. And it's all Eternal. Uh, so, you know, after Eternal Weekend, after Stacks Exchange, when that happened, 
uh, after this past weekend, they just constantly look at Eternal, how it's shaping up, uh, what's going on, and how the, like, you know, Eternal metagame has adapted to the way things have been going, you know, which is not necessarily great compared to how it used to be. Yep. Uh, and also getting into, you know, a little bit of theory crafting and set design and what P they think Magic is thinking. It's pretty great. No, that, that sounds I recommend pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm going to look into it. I, uh, the more Eternal content I can digest right now, the better I'll feel about the game. I really don't like watching that much standard. It's killing me. Yeah. Like, Historic's not doing it for me, and going out and playing EDH is great, but the content I want to digest in regards to streaming for Magic is definitely uh, more Eternal. I... To me, it's just more appealing magic. Not because it's like, oh, you got to think more. I'm a dredge player. If I don't open an LED, I'm mulligan. Like, yeah. So I don't care about that and those arguments. It's just, it seems more pure to play that kind of magic. And um, it just seem, feel, seems and feels more fun. The cards are more interesting and more powerful. And they, all the Eternal formats just use such a, a wide card base that celebrates the game as a whole. Yeah. Like, Standard was fun to play when I was in college and then afterwards because it's it's what I had and nobody up here played any other formats, but the charm for older formats eventually grew on me. Like, I missed Extended after um, I stopped playing and came back. Like, there was a gap year where Extended was basically rotting on the vine before Modern came out. And One like, of my that year killed me. favorite tournament memories. Uh, so this was when Mind's Desire Storm was oh a thing God, and I was on no. Teaching's Control. Oh, okay. So... My opponent goes, Mind's Desire. Holds his cards out. I'm like, okay, show me. Yep. So he goes through all the motions, gets his kill card, and I'm like, okay, time stop. <laughs> Scooped him up onto the next game. It was yep. amazing. For, for those of you <laughs> it took that, him like 10 minutes. For those of you that don't know what Mind's Desire does, I'm not going to bring it up because the important part of this card is... You reveal a card off the top of your deck, but in between, you have to shuffle your deck. For yeah, this this was before the shortcut was approved, yeah. so he actually did have to shuffle at this point. Oh, yeah, well, you say Mind's Desire Extended, I know exactly what you're talking about, because uh, Osep Lodovitz played that deck, and it played, like, Sapphire Medallions and all the CMC reducers you possibly could yep. to storm out as early as possible. And Mind's Desire was banned in Vintage before it was released. And it's, it's from Scourge, I think. Urge, yeah, Scourge. Yeah. And it, it's a card with Storm. It costs six. But you reveal top, the top card of your, your library. Or maybe you shuffle first and then reveal. But it doesn't matter. Yeah, shuffle, reveal, and Storm. There's a it. piece of manual dexterity involved in this. And it took them, like, at this point, probably three years. Because it's an ex people are playing it in Extended. Like, three, yeah. maybe two, three years to remove the shuffle aspect of this card. That's the important part about Mind's Desire is the shuffle. Yeah. Ridiculous. And just, like, the look of dejection on his face was just so great. And that's one of those things you get in Eternal formats yeah. that you don't necessarily get in I'm not I'm going Eternal. to end the turn, end your tournament. Good day. Yeah, get see out. Yeah. It's just like that <laughs> that uh, event that LSV played through where, where he was playing Storm and was supposed to have the, the Storm card, the Kill Con, in the sideboard, so you cast Burning Wish to go get it, but he left it out. <laughs> So he wished and failed. That was no, so good. Yeah, yeah. Only in like the top eight did somebody say okay, and then wait for him to resolve the burning wish. Yep. And unless we just scooped it up. Ah, that was so, it's good. so good. Yeah, so good. All right, picks. 
Yes, picks. Uh, I'll take the lead here. Yep. I'm going for Botanical Sanctum. Why might you ask? Because it's a fast land and one of the most popular color combinations. Uh-huh. And as we have touched on, Pioneer is making a comeback. In addition to that, if Modern ever happens again and becomes a thing, these cards are very, very good because we are in a tempo game pretty much in every format now. And fast lands, as formats get faster, only get better. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is the type of thing they're at just about their all-time low right now. I think they're about 50 cents off. Yep. It's just a really like good... That long mid to long term hold they're never going anywhere what's the first thing you everyone tells you to do when you get into a new format buy the mana base yeah buy all the lands yep that's all you need to do buy the lands absolutely i mean and you can look at the um the scars lands you know it didn't matter what they were eventually they were all played in the format in some way shape or form and if you didn't own them you got hoisted pretty quickly so You know, I'll bring up the stocks graph again because you can see it's a, it's making uh, a comeback. You know, these are in uh, Pioneer. I think they're in his. No, they're not in Historic. They're like two sets prior. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Modern Pioneer. You know, th- this is where it's going to show up. You can still play stuff like this in EDH. There's no reason not to. And if you don't own them already and you plan to play these formats, absolutely, it, it's hard to say no to a card with like a three dollar market price. What a free a piece of when real it's estate. A, a dual land. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's sure yeah absolutely Uh-oh. and it's continually the best combination in magic when cards like uro oko everything else exist yeah. yeah they haven't learned their lesson to stop making them they just ban them afterwards I... and don't learn so yeah but we spent almost 30 years with blue black being the most expensive lands let something else take over you know i'm not saying there isn't a problem with the cards that made it expensive i'm just saying it's nice to not see blue black at the top of the list or in some way shape or form yeah been too long i'm swinging the other direction i'm, I'm sticking uh with what i know and i'm, I'm going with uh, edh and my pick is actually mage right stone and this is a card that i've been well, looking at for a while because it's weird it's uh combo it's value it does everything um and it was the reason I, I held off on this for so long despite the fact that it has a fairly steady slope is that uh it got a mystery booster reprint and that kind of shut it down for a while. That 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 halted buyless numbers on this and buyless quantity and everything just like faltered. And we're just now getting past that. So despite the fact that this has had steady growth since mystery boosters came out, that was only on the open market. Vendors were not really doing much with this card. It just wasn't moving. There was not enough demand for people to move off the open market to uh, to vendors. So when I originally started looking at this card, Card Kingdom was buying thirty four at uh sorry 24 at a dollar 35 last week they're buying 34 at a dollar 75 and now they're buying 27 at a dollar 80 so again this is another card that has increased over the weekend and it, despite the fact that they might receive them in buy list is still holding strong and i expect to continue on this path because it does fit in so many strategies across the board for edh that this can't not become a more popular card the most difficult thing about this card and i'll bring up the uh, edh rec page for this is that you look at the commanders and they're just super duper uh value based and and then you got kiki jiki for combo but basically this card requires you to be able to untap with your general which might not be the most opportune thing to be doing at your table 
or in uh, a lot of groups. So I understand the stagnation in this card, and it doesn't require that Watsy print more creatures that or more legends that tap for value. There are a ton of them out there. This card could be more popular than it is. It just requires that people play this card more yeah. because the floor is so high. And as you dive through and you look at the cards that it, it pairs with, you see that, you know, aside from the generals, which uh, offer a huge swath of things you can do, it does go well with Illusionist Bracers, which allows you to double effects, Umbral Mantle, which allows you to untap the, the general, and Thornbite Staff, which is also it's like a, that a the pinger. Yeah, I can untap another combo. Yep. And you, you see that it is really kind of combo centric and you just want to finish out the turn that way if you're not just accruing value naturally with your general. So this is this all encompassing card. It, it fits all over the place. Eventually, people will kind of either, just, you know, put up or shut up on this and it'll either just take off really quick or we'll see this continued demand for the card as people just say, all right, I'll try it. Um, my timeline for this is really just nine to 12 months because I think okay. now's the time to buy. And if this, we're just coming out of a huge dip in overall price on this, so we're recovering from that. And we have Commander Legends on the horizon. I don't expect this card to get a reprint in there, but if it does, it's still gonna be time to buy. But because of the uh, depression in price increase for so long, I think it really is going to take nine months for this to be salvageable from a buy-less perspective. This is also the kind of card that I would actually say that I would be more happy to buy a set of to play than to overbuy to truly spec on because of how long it's going to take to really uh, pick up. And I don't know if I feel comfortable putting this much money in a card that's moving this slowly and go on large quantity when I could be churning cash for something else and taking those profits and buying more over time. So that's why I want to point out, I think we're in a great window to buy now for the next, let's say, three to four months. And then after that becomes the holds period. That's fair. I uh, Anecdotal, this was a card that I've been asked about at a booth multiple times. No one in the booth had any idea what it did. No one in the booth knew where to find a foil. It's one of those cards that just, as you said, is almost entirely, mm -hmm. entirely based on EDH. Yep. Um, I will say Card Kingdom is buying the foil, but it's not the set foil. It's the mystery booster foil. So we've, 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 we've talked about foils for certain things before and how they might be a better hold. I would not touch the foils on this card. They're a standard multiplier, 2x on TCG player right now, but if nobody has them on buy list, I wouldn't touch them because that means zero demand thanks to mystery boosters. Yep. So, yep, this is this is my card. I'm, I'm glad it, it finally kicked around because I've been watching it for a while. I, you know, to glom onto your story, I had no idea what it did. I thought it did something completely different. I thought it was Sentinel's Tower for a hot second because I forgot <laughs> that card's name. Yeah. And I just started playing like Zerda, so stuff like this is kind of on my on my radar, like to just do weird things. And I think this is one of those cards that just needs to be uh, brought up from time to time. Like, hey, you know, you want to do some weird tappy shenanigans? This is a weird tappy shenanigan card. Yep. So. Solid. I approve. Thank you. Uh, but I think we can draw this episode to a close. Uh, 
you know, Commander Legends spoilers have just started, so I'll probably touch on that uh, next week. Discuss <clears throat> maybe some of the leaky information. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, but aside from that, I am at Halt. I am Reptar on Twitter, representing at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, YouTube. And we can be found also on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Where can people poke the bear? Where can they find you? <laughs> at Thirsty Sizzler, poke away. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. See ya.